Good morning, Gospel Community Church. And I'm going to give you a uh, preemptive Happy New Year. If you don't know me, my name's Brad McGowan. Typically, I sit in the back. People don't like to look at this face. So uh, I sit in the back and uh, run the production ministry, but Ben has blessed me with the opportunity to bring you God's Word this morning, and I'm blessed to do it. So as we get started this morning, would you turn in your Bibles with me? Hopefully you brought those. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 42 through 47. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. And as you're turning there, I just, I was thinking uh, all, all this week, like, three cheers for 2020, right? Anybody like, yeah, 2020. No? <laughs> Man, did I read that one wrong? No, 2020's been a terrible year, hasn't it? Like, three months ago, I accidentally used my wife's toothbrush. Like, it was horrific. <laughs> like, like, three days ago, I just about super glued my watch to my wrist. It's been a horrible, horrible year. But joking aside, it's actually been really a tough year, right? And we, everybody's tired of hearing it, but COVID. COVID has spread throughout the world, and it has radically changed how this year has gone, right? COVID spread, and when COVID spread, governments across the world shut down their economies. And when the governments shut down their economies to try and stop the spread, they closed the doors of churches. And churches in many places have been unable to meet. And churches have closed their doors, and businesses have also closed their doors. And when businesses close their doors, people lose their livelihoods. Business after business after business. I've seen lists on social media of businesses that have closed and they will never reopen. And people have, have lost their life savings and their livelihoods. That's not to speak anything of all of the layoffs that have happened and the unemployment and the social restrictions that have occurred, the lost communities and the loss of personal touch and contact and the loss of communities has led to mental disease and it's led to depression and suicides. We have seen a rough rough year in the last year, but it's been the reality that the whole world has lived with, and if there's ever been a year in the history of the world where people are like, we need something new, we need like the reset button, give me something fresh, new year come, this is that world, right, or this is that year that we've just been ready, and no doubt, if you're the resolution-making type, uh, you've already made your New Year's resolution. I imagine some of you who have experienced health crisis this year have resolved that as a result of that health crisis, now you're going to live a healthier lifestyle. Maybe you've determined that you're going to eat a little better or you're going to start exercising. Maybe you've seen financial hardship with some of these businesses that have closed or layoffs that have happened. And so now you've determined that you're going to be better with your finances. You're going to keep your books better, rein in your spending habits. Or maybe, maybe you've lost a job and you've determined that you're going to learn a new skill to try and find a new career path that you might not have such a fickle work environment. Maybe this morning you walked into church like 10 minutes late and you realized your organizational life's a wreck. <laughs> and so you resolved to get a planner. Whatever it is, many of you, if you are the resolution-making type, you've already made those resolutions. But the reality is, and, and this stat is thrown out there so often, 90% of resolutions don't last six weeks. By February, your resolution's already failed, and uh, I don't know, you're back on those Amish crack donuts that are down the street, and workouts are done. <laughs> resolutions don't last. And what we see, what we will see in our passage this morning 
is a group of disciples who were also on the precipice of something new. And we'll see a better way than resolutions on what they did when they were confronted with a newness. Let's read our passage this morning. And I like to do this. Would you stand in honor of God's word if you're able? Standing isn't holier than sitting. What it does is it changes our position and causes us to pay attention to what we're reading. And if there's something we should pay attention to this morning, it's this. So let's, let's read Acts 42 through 47, chapter 2. And they, the disciples, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we are the most blessed of all peoples in the history of the world, that we have a full and complete copy of your revealed word. God, we carry your word in our hands. Lord, I ask that as we turn our attentions to it now, that you would speak to us from your word. Change us. Let us not leave this place the same, but impacted by the truths that you have revealed here for us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So anytime we, we tackle a passage in the middle of a book in the Bible, we really have to kind of orient ourselves where we are historically and uh, in the literary context. We've kind of got to figure out how we got to where we were. And there's really only one chapter in the book of Acts that precedes this one. And so what we see is that these 11 disciples that are meeting, that's the they that starts in this passage, they had just you think 2020 was a bad year. They just witnessed the horrific torture and murder of the one they believed was their Messiah that was going to save the people of Israel. But after that, they, they witnessed him raised from the dead. They received instruction from Jesus, the great commission to go into Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth and share the good news of Jesus. Then Jesus ascended into heaven and then Acts continues where the Holy Spirit descends upon this, this group. It was about 120 or so that met in the upper room at the beginning of Acts. The Spirit came and descended and empowered them, and they started boldly prophesying the good news of Jesus. And when I say prophesy, I don't mean the foretelling, I mean the forthtelling. They were boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And people gathered, a group gathered, and right before this happened, we see that 3,000 people were saved as a result of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And 3,000 overnight were added to the church. And I'm looking at that, and I look at Ben, and I'm thinking, that's got to give a guy like him chest pains, man. Like, logistically, what do you do with 3,000 people? Like, a room this size, what are we doing? We're, we're spent. All right, eight sermons a Sunday for Ben. But, Hallelujah. 3,000 souls were saved. And now we see the they at the beginning of our passage this morning. 
and there are now over 3,000 people coming to commune together in fellowship. 3,000 different backgrounds, many different cultures, different languages, different geographies of where they've been from, and now they're all supposed to get along. Me and my brothers can't get along, and we come from the same family. But now they have to create this fellowship, and we see how they've moved forward with this something new. Look at Acts verse 22. The first thing we see from Luke here is that the disciples had uncommon devotion. Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You see, what we see here from Luke, the disciples didn't just make some fleeting resolution, something that was going to fail in a few days. We see from Luke that the disciples, this new number of 3,000, devoted themselves to some things. It wasn't a resolution, it was a devotion. And Luke gives us four things that they devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And I think each of these things, if Luke thought it was important to write them, then we should maybe look at them a little bit. The first thing he says is the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we should ask ourselves, well, if they were devoted to this teaching, what was it that the apostles taught? And you don't have to look too far to really get the answer to that question. Really, you have to turn back maybe one page, just depending on the, the size of the print in your Bible. And we see Peter's sermon. And if you were to read Peter's sermon, we won't do that this morning. But if you were to read Peter's sermon, you'll see what consumed his sermon, what consumed Peter, what he was so passionate to proclaim was the gospel. What was most important for Peter was to boldly proclaim the good news of the Messiah. They had witnessed Jesus raised from the dead. He was the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for for decades and hundreds of years. They had been longing, Lord, redeem us. And Peter says, we found him. And this is he, Jesus, who is the Christ. That consumed his preaching. But what's important is, is Peter, he didn't just give opinions I have an opinion about opinions. Opinions are like butts. Everybody has one and they usually stink. And Peter didn't rely just on his opinions to say, I think this guy was probably the dude you should look at. What Peter did is he pointed them back to scripture. He said, I'm not going to give you an opinion. I'm going to give you fact that comes from scripture. And you see in Peter's sermon, what he did is he referred back to Joel chapter 2. He led them to Psalms 16. He led them back to Psalms 110 to prove to those who had come that Jesus was the Christ. You see, what this group of disciples had devoted themselves to was not the ramblings of some madman, not the opinions of one person. What these disciples had devoted themselves to in that fellowship was the gospel, was to knowing scripture, was to understanding God's word, what he was speaking to them in that moment, and discovering what God was doing in their midst, what he would do in them and through them and for them. That's what they were devoted to, was the teaching of the gospel as it stands in scripture. We too need to hunger for this gospel. And you see, these disciples, the word disciple doesn't just simply mean follower. I'm sure you've heard it before. The word disciple literally means learner. 
to be a student of whatever you're a disciple of. These disciples were students of the gospel. We too need to develop a passion to learn and understand the gospel and understand scriptures. You see, there, something happened back in the, the late 17th century. Maybe you've heard the term the Age of Enlightenment. The Age of Enlightenment is, it happened right around the 1680s, and that's when science and philosophy exploded onto the scene, where reason took hold, and people said foundation and evidence and proof, and science took a hold and launched forward. And in the midst of that Age of Enlightenment, the world convinced itself, and sadly, it convinced the church that there is this unbridgeable division between faith and knowledge. There is an unbridgeable division between Christ and learning or Christ and academia. The two are wholly separate. Immanuel Kant was an 18th century philosopher and he was well known in his day. And he famously said this, that faith has no room in the house that knowledge built. Faith and knowledge cannot be bridged. That is the greatest lie that the church has ever believed in. You see, because we as Christians often think that simply having faith is enough. Well, I have faith. What do you have faith in? Do you know what you even believe? You see, because faith that is void of knowledge of God is faith in the absolutely wrong thing. We too must be resolved and more than resolved, but be devoted to being students of the gospel. We must be hungry for the gospel, just like the disciples were hungry for the gospel. And it wasn't just in Peter's sermon that we see the employment of reason or the employment of reason and knowledge. Look, uh, in Acts chapter 17, Paul reasons with the Thessalonian church to prove that Jesus was the Christ. And again, the employment of reason implies the use of knowledge and understanding and facts and basis and evidence. It's not just this willy-nilly, I hope this is true. Again, later on in Acts chapter 17, the Berean Jews were referred to as more noble than other Jews because they examined the scriptures to determine whether the things said about Jesus were true. You see, their examining of the scriptures showed that they desired more knowledge to understand the truths about Jesus. Do you want to be known as a noble Christian? Examine the scriptures. Your faith cannot be bent on just hope, but it must be founded on a knowledge of the scripture and understanding of what God has already delivered to us. In this scripture, God has given us a complete and full revelation of himself. And do we know it? Do we understand it? Do we hunger for it? And do we long for it? Maybe you've heard the name Donald Whitney. Donald Whitney has written several books, and in one of his books he said this, the more Christ-like we grow, the more we will pursue both a full head and a full heart, and the more we will radiate both spiritual light and heat. See, Christians must realize that just as fire cannot blaze without fuel, so burning hearts are not kindled by brainless heads. Are you hungry for the gospel truth? Are you hungry to understand Scripture, to hear God's voice, to know what He has laid out for you and I to know? 
I can, uh, I can guarantee something for you. I guarantee Ben will stand up here week in and week out and proclaim the gospel to you without fail. The day he stops doing that is the day he's going to have some burly elders confronting him. <laughs> but just as food is nourishment for your bodies, the gospel is nourishment for your souls. And just as our bodies cannot survive on one meal a week, so your soul cannot survive on one dose of the gospel a week. Think of the life cycle of humanity. When we're infants, we are fed by others, by our parents and those who care for us. But when's the last time you saw a 24-year-old walking around with his mother spoon-feeding him? Here comes the airplane, right? How awkward would that be? When we grow, we learn to feed ourselves. And we should never forsake the teaching of our elders and the leadership of our elders. But it's insufficient for the Christian life to rely on one weekly dose of God's word. We need to hunger and thirst for the word of God and search it on our own day in and day out. We see also in verse 42 that the Christians devoted themselves to fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship. And often when I was reading this, I realized every time I've read this, I don't know how many times you've read Acts, but every time I've read this passage, it's so impersonal. The, the disciples and the apostles lived so long ago in a culture so different from mine, in a place so distant from mine, that I, I, I really don't have a personal, there's no humanity in them. Right? I just look at them as these pious, super religious figures that everything they did was filled with piety. But imagine with me, if you will, I don't know, can you see it? Can you see Peter in the midst of fellowship, like walking up to people like, hey, you have something on your shirt? Boop! <laughs> I made that one up. I got you. I'm getting everybody with that one. Or maybe can you see after they're singing like an especially heartfelt rendition of one of the psalms, and all of a sudden from the back of their sanctuary, Barnabas shouts out, it needs more cowbell. Or can you picture Mary having just made the bread for communion concerned, will John and James enjoy this bread? Is this going to fit what we need for communion? And, and having concern about the fellowship and what they'll think of the bread she's made. How many bad jokes, bad dad jokes do you think Philip told around the fellowship table? You see, the point of it is this. These were simply real people doing life together. We need to be able to see ourselves in these apostles and in these disciples. They're not some super religious figures. These were simply people who had devoted themselves to doing life together. They were devoted to something more than just a five-minute conversation after church and hoping that created fellowship but they were devoted to loving one another with Christ-like love. They were devoted to caring for one another's needs, to helping each other raise their children, to helping care for the sick and the widows and the orphans in their midst. They were a group that loved one another in such a way that they could call it devotion. And they were real people. It wasn't some super religious group that did this. It was people just like you and I. And they were committed to just doing life together. And I think that causes us to have to ask ourselves, do we love the church just as Christ loved his bride? And when I say the church, I don't mean the building and the walls that we have. When I say the church, I mean if you were to look to your left and look to your right, the people sitting next to you, do you love them as Christ loved his bride? 
because the church is the bride of Christ. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with Ephesians chapter 5, when we see that Christ loved his bride in such a way, to such an extent that he gave himself up for her. That's Ephesians 5.25. But think about this. Christ didn't only die for his bride. He labored for his bride for 33 years. He loved his bride to such an extent that he labored and longed after her. He cared for her. He taught her for 33 years in order to purchase her as his own. It wasn't only a death. It was a lifestyle lived to lay claim to the church as his own. Do you love the church like that? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ like that in a way that you're willing to labor for one another, to sacrifice for one another? And I wonder, coming to church, is it just another box that we check off on our weekly schedule? Or is gathering with the saints here, is gathering with other believers in small groups, is getting together just two or three in a home just to, to have fellowship together, are those the joyous highlights of your week? Do you long for the fellowship of other believers to exhort one another, to care for one another, and to do life together? I'll say, in our church, there's not a bad seat in the house. If you sit kind of in the back left uh, over here, you might find yourself sitting by Martha Ekstrom, who is passionate in her worship. I love seeing her worship. If you sit in the back right, you might find yourself next to Jeremy, who I guarantee has a terrible joke for you. <laughs> if you sit in the back left, you might get exposed to some of uh, Mark's folksy wisdom. If you come up front, you might encounter Mike Wagner, who has a genuine smile behind his beard. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ and long to be with them? There's not a bad seat in this house when you come on Sunday. We see also that the disciples were devoted to the breaking of bread. And this isn't just Luke's reference to a generic meal together. Although the disciples surely did share many meals together around a fellowship table. But Luke here, when he says the breaking of bread, he is specifically referring to the taking of communion. To the taking of the Lord's Supper. So what we see in this passage in verse 42 is that the disciples were devoted to taking communion. This week I read an article written by a, a guy named Lee Moore. He wrote an article in Christianity Today a number of years ago. And uh, Lee Moore was a Christian man who some time ago, uh, he was sentenced to prison for a crime. And while he was awaiting transfer to federal prison, he was in his county lockup awaiting that transfer. And while he was in county lockup, he, he made many attempts to meet with the pastor of his church and fellowship, but mostly he wanted to be able to take communion with that pastor. And they were always prevented for one reason or another. They would be prevented because they had to have the glass partition, or maybe they had to, uh, when he came in, they didn't have to have the glass partition, but he couldn't bring elements to take communion together. But Lee Moore had longed to take communion with his pastor. And in his article, he wrote this. He said, so without communion during my many months at county, I joined my Lutheran friends in spirit. While they gathered at the table on Sunday mornings, I communed with them from a distance. 
I followed the liturgy from worship bulletins that my pastor sent me. And with wine that I made from water and grape jelly and a slice of bread from my meal tray, I joined them in sharing in the body and the blood of Christ. It may seem uncouth or even foolish to join in communion remotely, like a child having pretend tea in plastic cups. But these were vital moments of grace that preserved me in my desperate time of need. What was so vital about communion for Lee Moore? What was, what was so necessary about it for the disciples that, that Luke can say they were devoted to communion? What is all about communion? And you see, while you and I, we often talk about using the right scriptures, like what scripture am I going to use to preach the gospel, or how am I going to use the right words? Am I going to fumble my words if I try and speak the gospel to somebody? You see, what preaching the gospel does for our ears Taking communion does with our actions for our senses. Taking communion is nothing short of preaching the gospel through action to the senses of your body. As you see the elements pass and as you take the elements from the tray in communion, your mind flashes to images of Christ hung on the cross and broken for you and I. As you taste that little salty and stale wafer, we imagine the broken body of Christ on our behalf. And as we smell the grape juice, images and thoughts of the iron-smelling blood of Jesus as it ran from his pierced hands and feet fill our minds. You see, communion is a preaching of the gospel to ourselves through action. And it invigorates our senses. And it opens our sense of wonderment at the vital grace that was dispensed at the cross on our behalves. Communion was vital to that first century church because it was a stark reminder in action through the senses to remember what Christ had done to save them from their sins. I don't know if you know this. You don't have to reserve communion only for when you come to church. See, Scripture says where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. Where you are gathered in your homes with your families, you can take communion and remember the broken body of Christ as a family. What way to bond your family together, your blood family, than to bond them with the unity of the gospel and to remember the broken body of Jesus? In your small groups as you meet in your homes, you can take communion together and devote yourselves to remembering the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you gather just two or three at a coffee shop, you can take communion and remember the wonderful act of grace at the cross where Jesus was broken to save us from our very sins. They were devoted to communion. We also see they were devoted to prayer. See, prayer for the first century church, it wasn't just this rote prayer before a meal. It wasn't something they just kicked off their services with. Prayer for the first century church wasn't just something they did as a rote act before they went to bed just to pray over their day. Prayer was vital to the very life of their faith. And I don't know if you're like me. Maybe you can admit like me. I have an on-again, off-again relationship with prayer. Maybe you're like me. There are days and weeks where I experience deep and communing prayer with God. 
And then there's other days and other weeks where I'm lucky if I remember to pray over my cereal. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. We see here in Acts, Luke telling us that these disciples were devoted to prayer. What was so vital about prayer for the life of their fellowship, though? Maybe it's hidden in the contrast between the prayers today and the prayers that we see in Scripture. I bet if you ventured, if I gave you one guess, I'm sure you could guess what the two most common things that are prayed for in the world today. Health and finances. I, I read a statistic, and I don't remember what the percentage was, but it was astronomical. Of the prayers that people say they make, the majority are about health and finances. I'm sick, and I don't want to be sick. I'm broken. I don't want to be broke. That's what the world prays for today. But if we look at Scripture, I think we see a difference. Here's what the disciples prayed for. In Acts chapter 4, they prayed for boldness to preach the gospel. And they prayed that God would send acts of power to embolden their preaching so that people would see the power that accompanied the gospel, believe the message, and be saved. We see in Acts chapter 7, that's the saga of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And when he is being murdered, stoned to death, the words that came out of his mouth, Lord, do not count their sins against them. And he prayed for the spiritual welfare of his enemies, the people who were in the act of murdering him. We see in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 14 that the disciples prayed over their leadership. They prayed that the Lord would lay, raise up the leaders for their church. And we see that also once leaders were raised up, they would pray that God would commission them for their service and that he would embolden their service and leadership. We see also in Acts chapter 13 that the disciples prayed for the missions as they sent Paul and Barnabas out for the first missionary journey. They prayed over them as they sent them that their ministry would be fruitful. And if you read the entirety of the rest of the New Testament, what you would see is more of the same. What consumed the prayer of first century Christians was not their physical welfare, but that the gospel would go forward. That people's lives would be transformed. And that their own lives would be transformed by what they had understood to be true about Jesus. See, prayer was so vital for their faith because prayer was what drew them to God that they could commune with God and that he would invigorate and embolden their faith and change, radically transform their spiritual destiny. John Murray, a Scottish theologian, said this, the, true, or the life of true faith cannot be that of cold metallic assent. It must have the passion and warmth of love and communion because communion with God is the crown and apex of true Christian friendship. You see, in true communion with God, that apex, that crown, that ultimate height of your faith in God occurs through a full and deep and vital and long and persistent prayer life. And we see that these disciples were devoted to that crown and apex of their Christian life. These devotions were uncommon because in that, in that day, there were only about 3,000 Christians in the world. But their uncommon devotions we see ultimately led to uncommon community. Look at Acts chapter 
uh, 2, verse 44. Luke says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Uh, if you're like me, I don't know, reading that verse almost makes me recoil a little bit. Like, oh, Lord, do I got to sell my house to be a Christian? Like, uh, that, one, that one's a little tough. But I wonder, uh, sorry, not I wonder, <laughs> no doubt in that early community, uh, they experienced poverty unlike anything you or I have ever seen. You see, in first century Rome, there was not a welfare system. The government didn't say, sorry, you're out of work. Well, we'll kick you a check for about six weeks so you can find work again. There weren't food stamps available if you didn't have food. Honestly, if you didn't work and you didn't have food, you starved to death. That was first century life. So they experienced poverty in their midst that we have never experienced in 21st century America. And what we see in Luke's passage in this uncommon community, that they were not a financially well-to-do community. See, it doesn't say that the disciples were giving to one another and caring for one another out of their abundance, but out of their own lack. They can, uh, they, they cared for one another, not out of these discretionary funds that they had, but they were selling possessions in order to meet the basic needs of others in their community. See, this was not a financially well-to-do community. This was an impoverished community of believers. But this was also not communism, right? It wasn't, hey, you become a Christian, now all your stuff is our stuff, and well, good luck with what you have left over. It wasn't mandatory that you gave your things, but this was an uncommon community where when people were saved and they came into this community and they experienced the love and the fellowship and the devotions that these disciples had, they were convicted by the Holy Spirit. I love my brothers and sisters in Christ so much that I'm willing to give up some of these physical things in order that they may live. This was an uncommon community. And you see in our verse... Verse 44, it says, uh, let me get back to it here, uh, they had all things in common. They had all things in common, I think, refers not just to property, right? It wasn't communal property. It wasn't mandatory that, hey, what belongs to you now belongs to me. But that implies even more beyond just property. They had in common the same beliefs. They had the same devotions. They had the same unity. They had the same ideas for ministry. They had the same desire to get the gospel out. They had the same longing for evangelism. They had the same in common desire to see their worlds transformed by a gospel. This is what these disciples had in common. Their sense of community was born out of their devotion to the word and to the work of God and to one another and for caring for each other in their midst. Now notice the, the choice of words that Luke uses in verse 42. He says, and they devoted themselves. You see, every new year, we throw out the word resolution like it's just water. We toss that word around a whole lot, but Resolution, really all a resolution is, when you're resolute to do something, you have made a cognitive decision to do something, or you, you have made a cognitive decision about something. Devotion is more than just a cognitive decision. Devotion implies passion. 
You see, your willpower cannot will the will of God into existence in any way, shape, or form. Your willpower, my willpower, is insufficient for nearly every task. That's why 90% of resolutions fail. But what exceeds a resolution is a devotion. A devotion to the things of God, a devotion to the kingdom of God, a devotion to one another, a devotion to caring for a community of believers. And that difference is passion. See, God's goal has never been to get his gospel into your head only. God wants to imprint his gospel on your very heart where it will transform your very life. And as your life is transformed, you will see a revolution occurring in your community. God's desire is so much more than this cognitive decision. So we each must ask ourselves, has the gospel been a cognitive exercise only in our lives? Or is it daily transforming my life? Am I passionate about God's word? Am I passionate about the gospel and about prayer? About communing with the saints? Has the gospel shaped and reshaped how I participate in the community of God? See, because the gospel transformed how they viewed their community. And therefore, they shared common values, common beliefs, common goals common desire for evangelism. We see that their community also produced uncommon attitudes. If we look at verses 46 through 47, Luke says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. See, as this early community grew in unity, and as they experienced this uncommon community where they cared for one another in just such an astronomical way, they had their common bond in the gospel, and that radical transformation was evident in the attitudes they expressed. And we see three distinct attitudes here. We see that they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Those are the first two. And when we look at the word glad, that's actually the same word that's often translated joy. So we see the uncommon community, the uncommon way that they lived resulted in joy. And biblical joy isn't some fleeting emotion. Biblical joy has its foundation in witnessing God move in power and provision and care in our lives. And that was certainly true of that first century church as they experienced God saving day by day those who were coming into their community. As they experienced people being transformed in the way they thought and caring not just about themselves but about the person sitting next to them as well. They witnessed God move in power and it resulted in joy. We also see generous hearts. It says they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And that kind of gives me pause. Like, how do you receive something with a generous heart? You ever wondered that reading that verse? Like, if Ben sold his house and brought me the money, and he was like, hey, obviously you need this more than I do because God convicted me that I got to give you the money from my house. If I look back at Ben and I said, oh, you're welcome. Thank you for letting me take this from you. You're welcome, Ben. Good luck on where your family's going to sleep, right? There's going to be beef between me and Ben for about a hot minute. How do you receive a gift with a generous heart? The word that was used uh, and translated generous, it actually means humility with simpleness of life. And that really doesn't fit in one English word. 
So the attitude that those disciples had was humility and the simplicity of life. See, they lived simple lives. They didn't live extravagant lives. They lived impoverished lives, not complex, extravagant lives. And in their poverty, in their simplicity, in the care of one another, they experienced humility. You see, those who didn't have enough even to eat experienced humility when they had to admit, Lord, I cannot provide for my own needs. I cannot provide for my own family. I need you to move in a powerful way. And as they saw God move, they were moved in humility. And those who had moved in hu- were moved in humility as they finally admitted the things that they had were actually not their own, but they were the Lord's to be used as he saw fit to embolden and raise up that community of believers to encourage and exhort and care for one another. See, their community was marked by humility towards one another in their simpleness of life. We see also that they were marked with attitudes of worship. And they were praising God. You see, as they experienced God move in their midst, as they experienced God move in power through their community, and as as they witnessed the wonders and signs being done by the apostles, as they saw God provide for every need, their response was an outpouring of worship back to God. Oh Lord, that our community would be marked with such attitudes of worship. Now, I think we can take a moment and admit together that Luke's depiction of community here looks more like a Disney movie than reality, right? <laughs> like, uh, the, the reality of people just living and singing kumbaya all day long together and no sin and strife and, oh, we just love one another. Like, does that exist in a sinful world? Really, we don't have to look far in Acts before we find out that that's not true at all. Right? What we see in Acts is we see that often their communal joy was marred by rifts in their relationships. We see that humility and benevolence were often scarred by selfishness and deceit. And we see that often their worship broke down and deteriorated into idolatry. And if that's the truth, then how in the world can Luke write that this community was marked by glad and generous hearts that were humble with what they had? And that we're overflowing in worship. How can he write these things to be true if we see in Acts that it's otherwise? See, what made this community unique is that even though there was guaranteed sin in their midst that constantly threatened division, the disciples were devoted to the things of God and to one another. And their devotion to desiring to see God move in power in their midst was enough to overcome the sin that threatened to wreck their community. We see the constant return back to God. Lord, I understand that I'm a sinner and I've marred this community, Lord, but let me come back to you. We see constant repentance throughout Acts. See, there, there I guarantee have been times when you have felt defeated instead of joyous in this life. Maybe you felt prideful instead of humility. We've all been captivated by the world instead of captivated by Christ at one point or another. But the mercies of God are new every morning to overcome sin and destruction in this world that threatens to mar the community that God has designed for his kingdom's advancement. Lastly, we see that their uncommon lives resulted in a revolution. The last part of verse 47 says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
See, this first, this first century community of believers, this first community of Christians, they lived in such a radical and uncommon way that it paved the way for God to inhabit their church. You know that God can't inhabit every church? There are churches in our world today that claim they represent God, but they deny his incarnation. There are churches today that claim to speak for God, but they deny his holy word. There are churches that claim to love God, but they deny love towards those for whom he died. God cannot inhabit churches that do not abide in him. We see that God abided and inhabited that church. This is the big thing we see out of Luke. That when God inhabits his church, because we are devoted to the things of God, and now he can move in power and his glory is on display in how we live as saved and transformed children of God, when God inhabits his church, lives are radically transformed. I want to close this out with this, this quote by Gary Carver. Gary Carver is a pastor and theologian, and he said something I read this week that resonated with me, and, and I hope it will resonate with you as well. Tracked with this, he started by talking about Moses. He says, a shoeless shepherd stands before a burning bush, and God is uniquely present. But it is only the beginning. A ragtag group of slaves fleeing from their former masters stands frightened before the Red Sea, and God is uniquely present. But it is only the beginning. A young woman, weary from a long journey, gives birth unnoticed amid manger earthiness. And God is uniquely present. But it is only the beginning. Sorrowful women hurry at dawn to anoint a dead body, only to find an empty tomb. And God is uniquely present, but it is only the beginning. Fifty days later, a group gathered for the common purpose of prayer, and something uncommon happened. It had not happened before, and it has not happened since. In that uncommon experience, God was uniquely present, but it was only the beginning. I'm going to add to what Gary Carver said. We are just a ragtag group of Christians. But God is uniquely present here at Gospel Community Church in Goshen, Indiana. And brothers and sisters, it's only the beginning. As 2021 dawns upon us, it is only the beginning of what God is going to do in your lives and in my life if we will be devoted to the things that God has called us to. Get rid of the fleeting resolutions. See, because the resolution that leads to a revolution is devotion. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have a picture of this first community of believers as they devoted themselves to you. Lord, we see when we are at the dawn of something new, when a new era is about to emerge, Lord, how they handled this new era, Lord, and we can learn from them how we ought to move forward, Lord, and as we move forward in devotion to your word, to the gospel, to learn it and to know it every day, that it would impact the way we live. God, we will see you move and transform our lives, and not our lives alone, but as you transform our lives, Lord, our communities will experience a revolution. God, I pray for that revolution here in 
Goshen, Indiana. Lord, as you are transforming the lives that are in this church right now, and as your glory inhabits this church and moves forward, let us be a shining light into the community around us. That we would see a revolution occur. Lives transformed. The gospel go forward. Your kingdom built. Lord, let us be changed by the power of your gospel each and every day. That we would live as you have called us to live. We pray these things in Jesus' name.